Before we start today's show, I want to invite you to join my community of SaaS founders, agency owners, and others who are sharing tips, tricks, strategies, and tactics for creating successful cold outreach campaigns. It's a free group on Facebook called Cold Outreach Mastery, and you can get there by heading over to morgandwilliams.com slash community. And if Facebook isn't your thing, but you still want valuable cold outreach advice, head on over to morgandwilliams.com slash newsletter and put in your best email to get first in line for valuable resources that I share on how you can fill your calendar with sales meetings and your pipeline with opportunities. Now, let's start today's show. What if you knew exactly how to use cold email, LinkedIn, the phone, and other sales channels to get new meetings and customers for your B2B product or service? Morgan Williams is an enterprise sales rep that's obsessed with cold outreach. If you're sick and tired of fluff, theory, and general advice on how to sell to cold prospects from people who haven't sold anything in the past 20 years and instead want detailed, tactical, step-by-step instruction, this is the podcast for you. Each week, he'll interview salespeople, consultants, and entrepreneurs about actual outbound sales campaigns they've run with real numbers and results. Each conversation will be a deep dive into deconstructing a specific campaign's results, as well as the strategy behind it. You'll get the opportunity to peek behind the curtain and see what's actually working now in cold outreach. Welcome to Outbound Metrics. Nick Cholas is the founder of Farmers Keeper. Farmers Keeper enrolls farmers in managed pricing programs led by their commodity broker clients, or known as MPPs. Similar to mutual funds, they allow farmers to contract different quantities of grain to be priced by a professional while they focus on what they do best, farming. Nick, are you ready to dive in? Hi, Morgan. How's it going? (laughs) Good, good. How does Farmers Keeper get results for its clients? So farmers have two essential challenges that they need to balance. Number one, which is what the American farmer is best at, is growing commodity crops, specifically corn and soybeans. But then number two, they have to sell those crops on international markets and get good prices for them. And that's really hard to do when you're in the middle of a 4,000 acre field without any cell service or anything to follow You know what China's doing, purchasing our goods or the strength of the US dollar or anything like that. We help them essentially with pricing programs that professional clearing firms and brokers price for the farmer, just like a mutual fund or a 401k while the farmer's busy out in the field growing a crop. Awesome. So you're a matchmaker of sorts. You're matching then the seller up with the buyer, the highest price, essentially. That's correct. In a lot of instances, yeah. Awesome. What would you say makes you different versus other similar companies that are out there? We try to purposely take a diversified approach because we're an agnostic player in the market, we're not really forecasting or predicting any market movements that are out there. We, we're we using through our partners, their different algorithms and pricing strategies for us to basically diversify how someone spends and prices their grains. You can think about that in terms of, let's say like blended mutual fund uh, that might have some high growth tech stocks on one hand, and then it also might have some real estate funds incorporated into it so that it's got a mix of aggressive and conservative strategies bound together to get good long-term pricing over the long run. Gotcha. So what types of farmers do you work with? Like who's your ideal or ideal types of customers? We spe- So 
Farmers Keeper contract screen from just under about a thousand farmers, specifically from North Dakota all the way down to Mississippi, but especially in the Midwest or what we call the I states. Uh, and and we're talking about commodity grade commercial corn, which is used not for you to open up a can of corn on uh, on Thanksgiving, but it's used for 60% use of animal feed so that you can eat a cow, chicken, or pig for dinner. And then also the rest of the 40% is for ethanol, which basically waters down your gas tank so that we're not as reliant on uh, foreign sources of oil. And then soybeans. And soybeans are used as a consumer product from the oil that's resulted of crushing them that is in so many of the processed foods that we eat. And then also that flake that's left over or the soybean meal is also a high protein feed byproduct that is used, especially for pigs to eat so that you can have pork. So we're talking about commercial grade corn and soybean farmers, not forget about your organic tomato that you pick up at the, at the grocery store, or organic watermelons or, or oranges or apples or anything like that. Got it. Moving into I uh, first spoiler for people listening. Nick and I know each other from several years back. We worked together. I want to know, like, first this week, because we're going to go into how you grew this business from scratch. So I want to set some background. How did you get into this? I was in the supply chain industry for a long time. I had I was a successful individual contributor at in transportation. And then I became a sales manager as C.H. Robinson, where Morgan and I met each other almost 10 years ago now. Yeah. I became a sales manager there and and grew a large team at a time that we were formalizing our sales culture from just the the uh, you know organic snatch and grab stage of of growth before we hit maturity in that organization and I wanted to spread my wings and get into a more nimble environment and after bouncing around a couple newer companies doing sales management and leadership I helped launch the go to market strategy for these managed pricing programs to farmers, not knowing much about the specific producer level of the agriculture industry outside of supply chain. And out of that initiative, I basically started calling on farmers myself and saying, hey, here are the benefits to to pricing some of your grain this way. You should consider doing this. And ultimately, some of the commodity brokers that I was working with to build this product out with wanted to hire me away to get them more bushels of grain under management. In other words, more capacity of farmers to price for them. And I thought, wait a second, I've made a lot of money for my companies that I've always worked for. Why don't I go make a lot of money for my clients and have an agnostic platform for them and not have one pony in the race of one specific commodity broker that might think that they can call the market and and what things are going to do. So I was really lucky and I started Farmers Keeper at a at a good time. And, and we've been growing and, and reaching more farmers and giving them a lot of value. Awesome. So you essentially started your career getting paid to learn. You're going into these different industries, but they're kind of related, right? Or different companies yep. in related, yep. right? Transportation, farming, and you're learning this, launching this go-to-market strategy and figuring out, hey, there's value here. I can capture more of this you know, right. on my own. Sure. You start the business. And can you talk about just as you're starting it, what are you thinking about for like your big levers of growth? How are you going to grow this business? Well, let's, so we need to put it in historical context now. I guess Mm -hmm. it is historical context at this point, but it was 
what I when I figured out that this concept of this or this strategy of of uh, procuring grain this way was going to work through new technologies that were available, basically marrying futures contracts with physical cash grain delivery. I it, it was the beginning of COVID, and I thought, man, maybe I have a business here. And you know, I had a high paying job at a prestigious company, working from home already, lots of benefits, and I thought, man, I must be freaking crazy to walk away from this. But I had an incubation period where I could keep working on what Farmers Keeper does while I was already working uh, in my current job related. And so my mindset was initially, as I started just being myself working out of my home office, it was, how can I put, as I call it, as we say here, putting a dot on the map, right? How can I just get another farmer, regardless of the quantity of grain or anything like that, how can I get them to contract some of their grain this way uh, and just get someone to say yes, just get someone to say yes and keep proving that out. And so we weren't very selective or choosy in, in the beginning. And we're still in the beginning in a lot of regards. You're contacting them via phone or you're meeting them in person. How are you con- or getting in touch with these farmers? We do a mix of it. So uh, initially, most of our contact, over 95% is done over the phone at first. And we do a simple reach out and say, hey, this is who we are. And we help farmers get better prices for their grain. And then we go right into the discovery process, learning what different uh, pieces of key information that we know we need in order to understand about everybody's farming operation. Because we work with a very broad base of clients within our industry in terms of size and sophistication levels. Uh, And then we do a lot of in-person meetings as well. Number one, to really break through and land deals that we otherwise wouldn't be able to without that face-to-face contact, especially in in rural America, especially in the agriculture Mm -hmm. and farming industry. That's a really big deal. Relationships. Absolutely. And and we're talking about generational relationships in, in many instances where, for instance, the person who bought a farmer's grain today yesterday uh, also bought grain from their father and their grandfather generations ago within a small community. So fitting into that relationship building is a big piece of the puzzle that is even more involved than perhaps uh, you know executive level relationships in a lot of cases, just in terms of familiarity with someone and what goes on in their business. Because each farmer is a CEO in and of themselves of a million dollar business, even in a small operation. Right. So you're, you're reaching out to these people by phone, you're getting FaceTime with them. How many, how many people you're reaching out to, like, how do you track it a day, a week that you're like outflowing to? So we, that for me, that changes based on the maturity level of the sales rep making the calls. I would say on average, each one of our sales reps is reaching out to probably 80 to hundred farmers a day. I like to see those numbers when I'm looking at outbound calls, regardless of what the industry is. I like to see after a while, just in terms of the maturity of the rep is you're going to see that ramp up from 10 or 20 calls a day up to the hundred level mark uh, as they get familiar with using a CRM or anything like that. But then, especially with what we do, I like to see that call number drop down to something like 40, maybe 50 calls a day, because what it means is that person is having more in-depth, sophisticated conversations with fewer people that are more targeted rather than, you know, not being able to get someone on the hook, for instance. Got you. Because since this is relationship driven, 
those are very profitable for you, those relationships with the right people. You want them to have those quality conversations. What is the farmer? I mean, you're essentially helping them get better prices for what they produce. What do they risk by choosing you or going with somebody new who they don't know? Like what is, what's the deal or what's in it for them? In that case, we are the person that they might not know or be familiar with, right? So that's why we have to build that relationship because buyer and seller relationships in ag are very deeply entrenched right now. But there are certain inefficiencies within that process that if farmers had the ability to, for instance, facilitate delivery of their grain to a number of different buyers versus at locking in a direct contract with one buyer, right? We offer them that diversity of where they're going to deliver their grain, which has a lot of different factors that we won't necessarily go into today, but we, we have to basically understand them first and then lay out, you know, the reasoning behind all that. Gotcha. So, so you're matching them up with a buyer. Like, do they, I'm trying to figure out, is there, I mean, it's pretty much all on you, right? Like you either find the buyer or you don't. Is there any like downfall for them with any with any like similar business? Is there any downfall for them is that the clearing firm or commodity brokerage that is pricing their grain will get them a lower value price than what they otherwise could have. The farmer himself is going to choose where that grain delivery takes place ultimately. It's not necessarily matching them up with a buyer. It's pricing the quantity of grain that they have on international commodity markets that are traded pretty much 24-7, five days a week. 24-5, I should say. It's about putting them into a fund that is going to price the futures component of that grain contract competitively. And then the farmer will have the freedom to select delivery wherever they want. So in some cases, you may have a broker or clearing firm that prices a lot of grain at a time of the year when they thought prices were going to be really good. And they sell a lot of grain for farmers and then prices continue to rise and the farmer loses out on the rest of that upside. Gotcha. So the opportunity costs of selling. Absolutely. We have sales reps who are making anywhere from like 40 to 50 to 80 to hundred calls a day, depending on the quality of conversations. Right. They go from there into a discovery call. Is that what you're set? They're setting up. Typically, typically what happens is, quick intro on our part. And then we go right into discovery with the farmer, understanding what our key metrics are that we have for them. Uh, And then we we're basically getting the code to understand which part of our service offering or how to apply it to help them with what is often described as the hardest part of their job, which is actually pricing the grain. Got it. Doing those out outreach uh, via phone, you are setting up discovery calls What, like, as you, as the owner, what metrics are you looking at every day from your sales force? Of course, what we covered first is number of outbound calls, length of calls so that we see, you know, if there's fewer calls during the day, was the length of call longer? And we use HubSpot for all that, by the way, which is, especially for a small business, is really a godsend. Uh, You know, I've used some of the bigger, more expensive CRMs out there in, in the corporate world. and the the amount of flexibility that it gives is just incredible. We're looking at, at the end of the month, as we total things up at the end of a week or anything, we're looking at number of new customers contracted with, number of repeat transactions with current customers, right? Are they coming back and selling more grain through what we're doing? 
We also look at how many visits in person were done throughout the month. And so we really try to keep it broad and, and general results-based. Uh, and then finally, we look at, at it as, and this is a direct for us one-to-one in our revenue model. We look at uh, what, how many bushels the, far, the uh, sales rep contracted that month. That's ultimately how Farmer's Keeper gets compensated by volume. That is all of those numbers are a bottom-up approach to figure out how many bushels of grain were contracted. Your reps who are making those calls, are they, are they full cycle? They're handling it from beginning to end? Today, I would say they're handling about 50% end-to-end. End, and then the rest of the other half, either myself or another sales rep is coming in to assist with that close. But Got yeah, it. they are taking it and, and harboring that relationship and, and also maintaining that relationship in perpetuity mm-hmm. as well. Is that like them handling 50%? Is that just based on resources? Like you're growing, you you guys step in where you can to support them? Or is that a strategic? No, it, for me as a small company, it's it's based on the, the skill level of my team. We do, though, as you get to a more strategic sale or as you go to a more complex buyer, it requires someone with more experience. And when you bootstrap a company, you know, in the middle of COVID, it's not necessarily feasible for what we're doing to hire in fully seasoned sales reps or, or a sales manager at this point. So I play that role. And that's what my career up till now has always been around training and doing, and doing higher level sales myself. We have to grow our talent organically. Here. And that, I think in a sense, that's, we use that as a strength for us. You know, we're not, we're not taking anything for granted. They're asking the right questions and, and have that hunger level there. You know, I made a conscious decision that we don't want someone who's been in the industry for a long time and thinks they know all the answers because sure. doing is, is looking at things with an open mind and doing things differently, not the same. So we want to grow our own culture from the ground up. And that's been successful so far. Is it a hundred percent phone or going back into like this funnel? Is it a hundred percent phone or using anything else? We do. In terms, so I, I still consider for us, aside from a company that just has a ton of funding to do whatever they want, can launch marketing campaigns and everything mm-hmm. on day one, I always say the, the biggest foundation that you need before you make any other investments in a service company or a sales company is just direct one-to-one sales outreach. So that's done primarily over the phone, customer visits all around the grain belt, essentially the middle third of the country. We also do mail campaigns, email campaigns, all that type of stuff. You mentioned HubSpot. What else are you using in your tech stack? <laughs> we are very, we are very basic and and low tech. I mean, basic we, is good. Man. Basic, basic is, is good. absolutely good. We want to stick to fundamentals right now. I, you know, one of the reasons I was so excited to get out of the corporate world was I was sick and tired of all the different hurdles that you'd have to jump into internally that are <laughs> that are hurdles to making a deal. And overcomplicating technology. You know, I think technology should be there to augment a real world process, not just to build an app or a website just for doing that. So we're using Google Docs simply to manage our PL and all of our different reporting capabilities and plugging everything back and forth in through HubSpot. And it works great. Got it. To break down to numbers, so we're doing 40 to 50. Yep. Towards that level or 80 to 100 calls a day. 
What do we look like when we go through the funnel numbers wise? We would, I would say today, and this also changes with the maturity level of the brand and the company. Sure. Uh, but today, if someone makes a hundred calls, usually the way it'll break down is this 45 of those contacts we'll never be able to get a hold of. And after a few calls, we'll be able to get 55% of them. Then I would say another 25, 30% of those fall off within the first 60 seconds of the call. Then once you boil it down to that 20, 25% that goes through a full discovery conversation, which is typically on that first call, or at least the first call where a conversation is had, follow up typically in a normal sales cycle, not in a strategic deal is about two weeks. And so usually what it looks like is discovery, then a quick pitch of what the product is and everything. And then just very predictably, and I think every process has some degree of this, but very predictably, our customer is going to ask for an email and our website to check us out online and see what everything looks like. And then ask for a call back the following week. Usually there's one more follow-up call to go over all the basis, and then they're going to come to a decision point. And right now we're converting somewhere around 5% of our leads every year or so. Can you share what like the lifetime value of a customer is? Well, so we don't know what the lifetime value of a customer is for us because we haven't been through a lifetime with it. This upcoming year, 2022, is going to be as farmer's keeper. It's going to be our third crop year that we've worked with people. I will share this. This year, our retention rate year over year of customers was 94%. So we only churned 6% of our customers from last year. And that's over several hundred farmers. What that means though in perpetuity is a lot like the election cycle for politicians. You know, After year one of that farmer using the service, we see the highest turnover rate. But then after that in perpetuity, that business, we become part of their normal cadence for how they're selling their grain and ultimately putting money into their pocket. The other thing that we see is too, our our total market share within that farmer. So that continues to grow year over year. So for instance, if a farmer produces 100,000 bushels of corn per year, we might start out with 5 or 10% of their market share. And we see that grow up to 30 to 50% within year one or two. Got it. So it's very lucrative. Lifetime value of a customer is very lucrative. But sure. It's yeah. That's what makes a 5% you know, close rate worth it. Where do farmers hang out on the internet? That very interesting question. That's really good to communicate to any audience. Farmers are hanging out on Facebook, Snapchat, starting to hang out more on TikTok and Twitter. So I would say probably number one, Facebook, number two, Twitter, number three, Snapchat. And then there are also just public forums online where farmers Mm -hmm. talk about everything from agronomic practices to foreign policy. I find that fascinating, especially when we get what well, like one of the top pieces of feedback I get on this show is I like when you talk to people from diverse industries, mm-hmm. right? Which I didn't think would be, I just thought everybody wants to talk about like, you know, need to be SaaS, but I guess I'm biased, but it's true. Like you learn some of the best stuff by looking at different industries, 
and then like even applying it to your own. And so I find that fascinating because I wouldn't have guessed. I have no idea, but kind of interesting. Have you ever, do you ever do anything on your, on your own with prospects, building relationship building on those platforms, anything like that with them? Like not a full blown program, but like anything you've experimented with? For us, that's a our, one of our biggest initiatives for 2022. Now that we are, we're organically growing and we are cash flow positive and we're profitable, which is great. We're blessed to be in that state and where the economy is in a weird balance today. But that's as I look at what excess we have in the business, that's a major area of our of our investment dollars for 2022 is specifically launching campaigns from a professional standpoint using third-party consultants to do that. A lot of other successful companies in the ag space are doing things like Facebook ads and Twitter ads and things like that. We're going to start getting a lot more into that as we can. And, you know, because that's not really where my primary area of expertise is. and We have to decide for ourselves, you know, where we're going to spend our time and learn things ourselves versus farm it out, right? Buy versus build. And this is one place where I want it really done right to buy. What's been the most surprising thing that you've learned just about the sales process with farmers going through that outbounding to them, like just selling in that space? I would say what, what I really found out was every what, when you look at a group of people, whether it's SaaS buyers or strategic buyers or farmers, right? Or you know, people who buy hot dogs off a cart on Fifth Avenue in New York, you know, no matter who that customer is, they all fall into a certain bucket. And there's a lot of similarities about them. But as we continue taking apart the industry and understanding more, we're seeing that there's just there's more difference in between that group than they are similar. So what we've really started to look at is how do we use our tools like HubSpot to to keep in and pull in that data to understand each individual farmer and a lot of different metrics for how they look like. Because my suppositions, I guess, before jumping into it, were not really like that. We assumed that farmers were a lot more the same in their in their buying habits or their selling habits. Nick Cholis, farmerskeeper.org. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Morgan. Take care. You too. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening.